Once again, in Amos chapter 6, verses 8 through 14, the Lord has sworn by Himself this morning the second installment. Let's quickly get up to speed. The reality of Amos is based on the sin of Jeroboam the first and what he led the entirety of the country into, not simply demonic paganism, but as we've noted from the very beginning, a refashioning of God in the manner that Jeroboam thought he needed him to be. And having removed the immutable standard of righteousness from the midst of the nation, the entire nation followed the king and falling into the vilest of depravity, a madness by which they believed their own deceitful hearts above the truth of God that was set before them. And so several centuries later, during the reign of his namesake, Jeroboam II, and two years before the earthquake, a prophet named Amos, not from among the people of Israel, But instead, from amongst the people of Judah, a shepherd from Tekoa saw the word of God. For the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. And a very partial God shows no partiality. For there is an anger that comes out of love stronger than that that comes out of hate. Thus says the Lord, hear this word, O you cows of Bashan, not simply an insult, but a spiritual reality. Out of all of the people, he knew them, and because of that, they will meet him. Yahweh himself, the God of hosts, the God of armies, the God of war, prepare to meet your God, O Israel, not because he doesn't know you, not because he isn't intimate with you, but specifically because he does. Therefore, he speaks lamentation over them, a complex song from a complex heart of anger and sadness. For God is angry and rightly so. The virgin Israel is breaking his heart. There's a truth in Amos that says if you're going to place your trust somewhere, you better know who you're trusting. And not just think or convince yourself that you do. See, these people desired the day of the Lord, but they desired the day of the Lord not unto their salvation and not unto His glory, but instead unto their own destruction because they did not actually know the God whose day it would be. Therefore, rightly well, God had told them to hate evil and love good, but they had hated good and loved evil. And so He says, woe to you. Woe to you, O Israel, justice will roll down. It will turn itself upon you like water, particularly to those who are least willing to be woeful, those at ease, those that feel that they are secure, for their feelings do not match the reality at hand, for they are neither easy nor secure. Over the last couple of weeks, we ask why the denial on behalf of this people that is ensuring that the freight train continues to run off the end of the tracks to their own destruction. How can they be this blind? And Scripture tells us it's because they're the ones that bring their God in their own hands. When your God looks an awfully lot like you, you end up looking awfully righteous, even when in actuality you're not. Such provocation will make a holy God swear. In Amos chapter 6 verse 8, where we left off last week, the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob. 
And I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. A holy God swears by himself. He even mentions himself in three very particular different ways that I'll remind you of here in just a moment. And the result of a holy God swearing to himself is nothing less than bring out your dead. And whatever you do, don't mention the name of the Lord. For he is the one that has brought such calamity and judgment upon us. He did it because of Israel's insanity. As those that would run horses on rocks. Turn justice to poison and righteous fruit to wormwood. As though they thought that a righteous God would not respond. If ten remain in one house they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He will say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in low debal, who say, have we not by our own strength, by our own strength, captured Kirnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. A holy God swears by himself. God speaks of himself in chapter 6, verse 8, in three different ways, relationally, intrinsically, and existentially. Relationally, he speaks of himself as how he is to them. Intrinsically, he speaks of what he is. And existentially, he speaks of who he is. Notice in Amos chapter 6, verse 8, three different ways that he proclaims himself in his swearing to the house of Israel. He is the Lord God that is sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. Relationally, he is Lord. He is Adonai, the master. Intrinsically, what he is, he is God. He is Elohim. Deity, specifically the God of hosts, the God of armies, the God of war. But existentially, and this is the only one that he uses twice. He is God and Lord. He is Yahweh. The proper personal name of God. How he thinks of himself in his own mind. And therefore he swears by himself. He swears in the positive as well in the negative. In Amos chapter 6, verse 8, he is swearing in the negative. He says, I swear by myself, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds and I will deliver up this city and all that is in it to death and destruction. But in Hebrews chapter 6, in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13, We see the Lord swearing by himself in a very different manner. 
not swearing by himself unto the destruction and the death of his people, but instead swearing to himself unto the salvation of his people. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Man, when God swears, there's nobody he has that he can swear by that's more sure than his own self, his own life, his own character, and his own being. And so when he swears by himself and he swears to Abraham and to his children according to the faith, to you and to me, to those who are followers of Jesus Christ, when he swears to us, we have a sure foundation for the soul. Does it move? Why? Because Jesus himself entered behind the curtain and made propitiation for my sin and for yours. It's absolute. And yet, this promise that was obtained by Abraham came to us through the promise being extended to his line through Isaac and Jacob who would be renamed Israel. And it is that same Israel that we look at in Amos chapter 6 verse 8 and the Lord holds up his hands and says, I swear by myself I'm going to wipe you out. 90% mortality rate. You will cease to be a nation. You will cease to be a people. You understand that the only Jews that can actually track their heritage as being Jews today, none of them came from the northern kingdom. None of them come from Jeroboam the first. They don't even, if they're left, they don't even know who they are. Anybody that can trace their historical roots to Abraham today traces it through the southern kingdom of Judah. The rest of them all died or scattered so far abroad that they lost their own identity. I want to have you note in Hebrews chapter 6, because you go, how does that happen? How can you have God swearing to Abraham by himself that this promise will come to him and his heirs and then turning around and looking at these same heirs and once again swearing by himself, I'm just going to wipe y'all out. Is that an Old Testament, New Testament thing? Is there like a, you know, is, is, is there some kind of fundamental separation between what's being talked about in, in Amos and what's being talked about in Hebrews? And the answer is no, there isn't. And the reason that we know that there isn't that the positive of God swearing by himself is not divorced from the negative of God swearing by himself is because of the way that the narrative in Hebrews continues in chapter 6 in verse 4 through 8 
where the writer of Hebrews says it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and is near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Okay. Within the view of the author of Hebrews is the Lord swearing by himself to Abraham to confirm the promise and then turning around and swearing by himself that if you don't, that all that is left is the fearful expectation of fiery judgment. In the context of Hebrews, God swearing by himself the gospel to Abraham does not lie apart from God swearing by himself the destruction of Abraham's promised seed in the nation of Israel. And you look at that and you go, man, that is a complete self-contradiction. I mean, how can, you ha- how can he swear that the promise is coming to you and it's coming through your seed and through this nation in the land, this is all Genesis chapter 12 stuff, we've been there already in the last couple of weeks, and then turn around and say, okay, here's these people in the land, let's just go ahead and swear by myself. The same standard, d- d- does that not put the standard itself in a position of self-contradiction? Is this not a crisis of character at this moment? Because the same standard, God saying himself, is promising, swearing, an oath that the promise to Abraham will come true and simultaneously swearing an oath that he will destroy the means by which he said that promise would come. It's problematic. If you're into programming, this will undoubtedly cause, undoubtedly cause a cascading and critical failure. Isn't that a contradiction? It is to finite creatures until an infinite God reveals himself. This requires wisdom and understanding, and that's not my opinion. That's the Holy Spirit's opinion as he enlightened and inspired the author of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 and building up to this statement that he just made that we've been reading about in chapter 5, verse 11, about this we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, therefore, 
Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And friends, this morning, this we will do if God permits. And he's going to have to permit it. So here's the deal. This is solid food, folks. This is the way that the Holy Spirit introduces it as solid food. So... This is a steak, and it's not even necessarily filet mignon. This is something with a bone in it. You're going to have to gnaw on a little bit. And so if you're, if you're young and you're used to a lot of milk, I want to remind you to chew before you swallow lest you choke. And if you've been at this for a long, long time, make sure your polydents got them nice and tight. Because this requires wisdom and understanding. Now, that being said, because it requires wisdom and understanding, what I don't want to do is kind of this big buildup where you don't understand what's going on until right at the end, and then all of a sudden you kind of reveal the answer and everybody goes, aha, and it seems very kind of witty and well-prepared and all that kind of stuff. I don't want to do that. I don't want any cliffhangers. I don't want any confusion. So before we even begin with what God is swearing by himself here, both to the salvation of his people and the damnation of his people. Before we get to that, I want to kind of remove any cliffhangers. And so for for just a moment, let me digress from the text and just give a little bit of background here. Um, We are tulip people to the bone, friends, to the bone. I taught a class on this several years ago. We had a bunch of newer folks come in, and they they had some misunderstanding about some of this. They want, or, or at least some confusion and not a lot of depth and they wanted more so we taught a class on it we might teach it again if we had enough interest in it i don't know if we do or not maybe everybody's up to speed but when you talk about tulip that always kind of sets people's hair on fire and i just want you to know that it is not we do not approach this though some people might actually some people do and because some people do they screw this text up something horrible we do not approach this as dogma. This is, tulip is not a truth through which we understand Scripture. Instead, tulip is the truth that Scripture dictates to us in order that we may believe it. That is to say, when we talk about tulip, all we've done is we've kind of codified the great principles of salvation that are taught in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so the acronym breaks down like this. T stands for total depravity. U stands for unconditional election. L stands for limited atonement. It would probably be better if it was particular atonement, but that's an argument for a different day. I stands for irresistible grace. And P stands for the perseverance of salvation. Or, as we Baptists like to say, once saved, always saved. Man, if you are born again, you are born again, period. And the only one we're really concerned with out of that list this morning is probably the perseverance of salvation, the perseverance of grace, once saved, always saved. And what are we to believe about that? We believe what Scripture teaches. We believe that God does not fail. He does not fail. When He, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't bring to, to the edge of giving birth and then give birth to wind. When He says, when He looks down at one wallowing in their blood and says, live, baby, they live. When he calls forth Abram out of the the paganism of the Chaldeans of Ur, he becomes the crossed over one. 
He becomes the Hebrew. It's not maybe, it's absolute. For salvation is not of man, salvation is of God. Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Salvation doesn't only belong to the Lord, it's according to the purpose of the Lord. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8-9, through 9, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Christians, you want to know why you're saved? You're saved because God purposed to save you and then applied His grace to you that His purpose might be fulfilled. You did a lot of stuff when you were born again. Scripture requires that you do. None of it's what saved you. What saved you was the purpose of a good God, showing grace to those who deserved no grace. Because more than that, furthermore, not only were you saved because of God's purpose, but God absolutely, positively accomplishes all of his purposes without fail. As he said through Isaiah in chapter 49 in verse 9 and 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. There's never been a person that God purposed to save that wasn't saved. He gets his man. He gets his woman. He gets his boy. He gets his girl every single time. And having obtained them, he does not change his mind. He says in Numbers, this is 23, verses 19 through 20, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed. I cannot revoke. So, when you're saved, you're saved by the purpose of God because salvation belongs to God. God accomplishes all of His purpose, and having accomplished it, He does not change His mind. Therefore, salvation perseveres. You know, historically in Tulip, the P was perseverance of the saints. You notice I said perseverance of salvation or perseverance of grace because at the end of the day, while the saints are persevering in practice, they're not the causal agent of the perseverance. God is the one that is causing them to persevere. It is grace that is triumphing. The reason the saints triumph is because God's grace is triumphing. It's Him that's doing it, man. It's Him that keeps you. It's a very active keeping. Because all of this is true, grace perseveres. And so we can say with Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 8, as we looked deeply for months as we were moving through the book of Romans in chapter 8, we can say that those that were foreknown will absolutely positively be glorified. There is no stopping it. There is, and this is a one-way express, man. There is no way to get off the bus in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you are foreknown... You will be predestined, you will be called, you will be justified, you will be sanctified in conformity to His Son, and you will be glorified, period. 
We say then with Paul, who then can separate? And the answer is none. Amen. None. None can separate. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him all up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What shall separate? None. Why? Because God won't and nothing in creation can. Including angels and powers, which would include Satan himself. Now, contrary to what many of our charismatic friends might think, that also means that you too, as the creature, cannot separate yourself. You know why? It wasn't your purpose that got you joined to him in the first place. It was his. You didn't pick it up of your own accord, and you're not going to put it down of your own accord. You may try. We'll get there in a minute. You can't do it. And, and friends, I'm going to tell you something. If Satan can't do it, then... It, I love a Reformed Charismatic, friends. They're awesome. we got a house full of them. But let me tell you, previous to that, the concept that you can put down something that God has ordained of your own human free will is the height of arrogance. You know that Satan is such a high order of created being that Michael the archangel himself dared not offer a rebuke lest it be blasphemous, but instead said, The Lord thy God rebuke you? Let me tell you, if Satan can't pry it out of his hand, you're not going to wiggle out either. What can separate? None. Because nothing in creation can, and God has decided that he won't. You say, man, well, we know all that. So why go to the big deal? Because Scripture is about to say some stuff that is going to call all of that into question until the light bulb comes on. And until that moment, I don't want your foundation to be shaken. Like I said, no confusion, no cliffhangers, just all out on the table. This is the way it works. So having that full assurance for the soul that's based on God swearing by himself and then fulfilling that oath when Jesus Christ himself died and walked into the temple in heaven and propitiated your sin and mine, having that is the confidence of our sure foundation. Let's get uncomfortable for a moment. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 8. And we're going to 
be comfortable with the uncomfortableness that the Holy Spirit puts on us because if God wants you to be uncomfortable, you don't have any business bringing false comfort into that. Oh, man. Oh, buddy. The heretical and blasphemous, arrogant things we do in the name of making people comfortable when God has no intention for them to be comfortable. You know, if you'll be uncomfortable for a little while, you might find that the Lord will use that to bring you to a place of peace where the anxiety of recidivistic discomfort actually melts away. (laughs) It's an amazing thing. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it, produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Okay, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Because what that sure sounds like, you know, in a kind of a cursory reading is that you have someone that was saved and then they fell away and now it's impossible for them to return again to repentance. And so what's going to happen to them is they're going to be burned. And it probably sounds like that because that's what it says. Now, popular scholarship. And some guys here that I really respect, and I want to press that. John MacArthur's one of them. Really respect the guy. Way more brilliant than me. But this stuff's not based on brilliance of intellect. It's based on the willingness to go non-dogmatically with whatever the Holy Spirit says... And if what he says is contrary to your dogma, your dogma's wrong. And so what popular scholarship in, in Baptist circles that are going to hold, if not to the whole tulip, at least to the P, right? People say, oh, I'm a four-point tulip God. I'm like, no, you're not. It's a self-contradiction, but whatever. The reality is, is three-quarters of the Baptists we got running around today are one-point tulip guys. They're just a P. <laughs> That's about what it's worth. Man, if you if you think you've got the without the tool, you're sorely mistaken. What most popular scholarship will do to try to explain this away today is they will key on the word tasted. Now and they can do that. It's on it's it's not on it's a little shaky ground, like exegetically, but there there is some argument to be made there. And as a matter of fact, if that's all Paul said, or if that's all the author of Hebrews said, 
excuse me, I'm biased to showing. Um, if that's all the author of Hebrews said, I, there's a really good shot it was Luke. I, I used to would just go Paul to the, to the death, but it could have been Luke. But that's trivia. If all he said was tasted, as though they, what Bill Clinton said, didn't, or didn't swallow, right? Didn't inhale. Like it just, it just tasted. They just tasted it. They got just enough Jesus to inoculate themselves. They just got a, a taste of these things, but they weren't actually saved. And the reason there's an argument for this is because that exists. That thing exists. And man, we have unfortunately, I think that some of the things we did out of out of the 1980s that was kind of a knee-jerk reaction to, to some of the stuff that we did in the 60s and 70s, what we did in the 80s and, and into the 90s was a knee-jerk reaction that I think we kind of perfected this idea of inoculating people with Christ. Let's get them just enough that they can think they're saved. And so what happens is, is Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? Do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so if you just key on this word, that they, they tasted this, but they didn't swallow, right? They didn't, they didn't eat the meal. They, they tasted the milk. They tasted the meat, but they, they didn't consume. They didn't partake. They didn't do what Christ was talking about where he said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. It just got them a, a little bit. And therefore... What we're talking about people here is not actually people that are born again. Now, in order to do that, you have to ignore a couple of other statements in the text. One would be the word enlightened, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Enlightened is more problematic than taste. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 through 18, Paul says enlightenment is the means by which salvation comes. And so he says this, Chapter 1, verse 15 through 18. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, Paul is describing the saved church at Ephesus. And he says, here's the way you got it. The Holy Spirit enlightened you with these things. And therefore, you know the hope to which you're called and what are the riches of the glorious, not promise, but actual inheritance of the saints. This enlightenment has brought a knowledge of your inheritance to you. But he says more than that. Not only have they tasted, not only have they been enlightened, but they have shared in the Holy Spirit. Verse, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this was even more problematic because not outside of the book of Hebrews, but inside of the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews uses the concept of sharing in the Holy Spirit as being indicative of salvation. He says this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, Therefore, holy brothers. We're not just talking to anybody. We're talking to holy brothers. 
Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession who is faithful to him, who appointed him just as Moses was also faithful in God's house. The author of Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the concept of sharing in the heavenly calling, of sharing in Christ, and sharing in the Spirit as being indicative of salvation. How do you ignore such things? How in the world... (laughs) It's interesting to me when you look at um, study Bibles that have the line and the opinion below the line. The way that that people do, that authors do, when they come across a text um, that, that they are passionate about, when they come across a text that they legitimately don't understand, and when they come across a text that their dogma um, takes issue with. Because when they're passionate about it, you, simply, you typically get these like very straightforward, absolute statements, bam, bam, done, and move on. When they just don't know what to do with it, they ignore it. Have you ever noticed that? You come to a spot in Scripture, and you're like, huh, man, I don't even know what to do with that. Let's see what the commentator says, and there's nothing. <laughs> they just go, just remain silent, keep you from looking ignorant, right? And then when their dogma is at turmoil with what the text says, all of a sudden, the Scripture above the line becomes about this tall on the page and they just blow up into these word gymnastics trying to explain why it doesn't really mean what it says. How do you ignore these things? Dogma. And then you talk a lot in circles about why it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. This is a complex situation. Now, here's the perceived answer. Even as difficult as all that stuff is, the perceived get-out-of-jail-free card here so we can maintain our comfortable concept of once saved, always saved, occurs in the immediate context in chapter 6 and verses 9 through 12. In verse 9, it says, Though we speak in this way, It's impossible for you to be returned and restored to repentance. Though we speak in this way. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so you get to all of that, and it's kind of this you know, big, heavy, scary stuff. And then he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You go, okay, there's the kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. Because... All of these things are indicative of salvation, but none of them are absolutely definitive of it. So that is to say that anybody that's saved is going to display everything that was mentioned here. They're going to be those that have been enlightened. They're going to be those that have tasted the heavenly gift. They're going to be those that share in the Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They're going to be those that understand the the powers of the age to come. 
Anybody that's saved is going to have those things. It's indicative of being saved, but it's not definitive. Salvation isn't simply tasting the powers of the age that is to come. Salvation isn't simply being enlightened. Salvation is regeneration, justification by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we may even point to Caiaphas. He was going to knock the gates of hell clean off their hinges. And yet, being the high priest, prophesied. Back when we did the Gospel of John, we called it the unrighteous truth. (laughs) Prophesied that Jesus Christ would die for the nation. He did that by the Spirit. He got him a taste. He got a little enlightenment. Not enough to save him. And so that becomes kind of the get out of jail card is here's the deal. These things are indicative of salvation, but they're not definitive of salvation. And these people that he's speaking to, they have better things, things that belong to salvation. So these don't necessarily do. And so you're speaking of a lost person there. The problem with that is massive. You stick your hand in that trap, it'll drag you to heresy. You will become a heretic. Here's why. The problem with dismissing Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, is simply applying to the unregenerate that thought they were regenerate. What do you call them, unregenerate followers of Christ? The problem with trying to apply that to unregenerate followers of Christ is the statement in verse 4. that it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. So there's a big list of qualifiers there about all the stuff you've done. If you take those out, just so it's the grammar's more straightforward, then, then the clause completes itself without the modifiers, without the subjects. It completes itself at the end of at, um, at the beginning of verse six. So verse four, for it is impossible, to those who have once been enlightened and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the group of people that is being spoken of here, Scripture says that it is an impossibility at this point, if this happens, it's impossible for them to be restored to repentance. The word restore is a passive verb. That just doesn't mean it's impossible for them to get their act together and restore themselves. It means it's impossible even when acted on by an outside force for them to be placed in a position of repentance. Off the table cannot happen. Now, here's why I say, if you go down that road and say, this is just unregenerate people that think they're believers, it's not actual Christians, if you go down that road, it'll make you a heretic. And here's why. Because if Hebrews 6 refers to the ungenerate, then there is a certain class of unregenerate people, that being those who got a little too close without closing the deal of the gospel. If it's speaking about unregenerate people, there is a certain class of unregenerate people in which salvation is wholly unavailable to them. 
It is impossible for them to come to repentance. And if that's the case, then all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved is not true. It's a lie. Because right here, some folks, if this is unregenerate people, that regeneration and repentance that is required for it is impossible to come to them. Turns out, you know, whosoever knocks, the door will be opened unless you're one of these guys. Whosoever seeks will find unless you're one of these guys. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. You have to be lost to be saved. It says that all who knock the door will be open to them. Speaking of Christ and His grace. And that all who seek, they will find. And that while salvation is impossible with men, salvation is not impossible with God. And if this used, used, restore, in the active verb, I would tell you that's just what it meant, but it doesn't. It means they cannot be. Not of their own accord, just period. They're done. Why is repentance impossible for them? Repentance is impossible for them. It's in the text. Repentance is impossible for them, number one, because repentance is granted by God. Repentance is a decision we make, but only after God has granted it. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 25, it says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. Not give them the opportunity. The opportunity is there for anyone. But he may actually grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Scripture goes on. This time in the book of Acts in chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, to tell us that when God grants repentance to someone, He grants that repentance through the means of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. That anyone who has ever repented of their sin and turned in faith to God did so through the power of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, friends, that is, I mean, that is orthodoxy. Can I get an amen? If you've ever repented, you repented. Not because you were smarter than the next guy and knew it was better to repent than stand rebellion. You repented because it was granted to you by God through the power of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 5 says it this way. God exalted Christ at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. And how was he exalted to his right hand? He was exalted to his right hand when he condescended and came as the flesh, when he took the sins of his people upon them, died a substitutionary death on the cross, was buried, raised again three days later, and ascended on high into heaven, where he stepped into the holy of holies in the actual temple not made with human hands and used his blood. This is Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10. Used his blood to purchase redemption and pardon and propitiation. And since having done that once, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. If you have ever repented, that's how you repented from the power of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And friends, Christ was only sacrificed once. Just once. Hebrews 9. 
When Christ appears, a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. If you've ever repented, it was because it was granted to you by the means of Christ's sacrifice, and he was sacrificed once for all, and he will not be held up to contempt again. Which is why the author goes out of his way to say that it is impossible for those who have been enlightened and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they would be crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. It only happened once. You don't get to do it twice. It didn't happen twice. It happened once. This is why we're limited atonement people. Because he walked into that temple and every single sin that was ever going to be paid for, he paid at that moment. Done. You're not going to crucify him again. He did it once. He was bound by nothing other than the goodness of his own character to do it at all. He's not going to do it twice. But, if you just want the game set match, that we're talking about people who were born again, turned away, and it's impossible to restore them to repentance. If you want the game set match, it's in Hebrews chapter 10. Because he's developing this ideal the whole way through. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 19, therefore, brothers, okay. This is what a, sh- a saint should look like. Here's what they should look like. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that was opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider, yeah, he's faithful, he swore by himself, man. What else is he going to be? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's what it's supposed to look like. The full assurance and anchor for your soul. Here's what happens if it's not that. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? He's outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay. For if we, he's still using, the you know, who's we? Pronouns are defined by their antecedent in context. 
the we that he is speaking of is plural first person. It's the author and the audience he's writing to. It's the exact same we that he was just talking about in verses 19 through 25 as letting us draw near with a heart in full assurance of faith and our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This same we he now addresses and says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving that very knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but instead the fearful expectation of judgment judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. There's no longer any sacrifice for sin if you do this. Instead, nothing but fearful expectation that you will encounter fiery judgment that is reserved for the enemies of God. Why? Because they have profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. You want the game set match, you want the checkmate, you want the proof text, microphone drop, this is it. How do you know for absolute certain beyond the shadow of a doubt that what he is talking about is born-again believers that become apostate and there is therefore no longer a sacrifice for sins and no ability to restore them to repentance so that in turn they get burned? You want to know how? Because what they did, how much worse... Punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? You know, we, we transliterate or we want to... It wasn't a good concept for sanctification in the English language, and so we, we wanted to transliterate it. This is centuries ago out of the Greek. And the word... Here is hagiazo. And it means to set apart, to make holy. It's the way that God is holy and it's the way that salvation by the blood of Jesus Christ makes his people holy. But we had a concept for holy, but with the English language, it just doesn't work when you put it to the process. So holy works, but holify doesn't really work. And holification really doesn't work and so instead we borrow from the Latin and sanctus and we say sanctify and sanctification but it's all talking about the same thing and so here is the blood of Christ that makes sinners holy here is the blood of Christ that 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 holifies you it is the definition of justification It is the blood of Christ applied on your behalf so that your sins are covered and God no longer reckons you according to your own blood but reckons you according to perfect blood and not just any blood but specifically the blood of a son so that you may be reckoned the children of God. These people were holified by the blood of Christ. And what have they done? They've trampled underfoot the Son of God and outraged the Spirit of grace. And God looks down and says, For you, there is no more sacrifice for sin. There is an impossibility of you being restored to repentance. Instead, what you'll do is burn with the enemies. Okie dokie. And if you just want to just, let's just go ahead and beat the dead horse. 
Just before he says this in chapter 10, the author of Hebrews has already set up holification through the blood of Christ as being definitively salvific. In chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, When Christ appeared as the high priest of the goods, things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption for the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, holify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works and serve the living God. Man, these people were made holy by the blood of Christ and they have trampled the Son of God underfoot. They have outraged the spirit of grace. And because of that, he says, it is impossible for you to be restored to repentance. And there remains for you no longer any sacrifice for sin, but only the fearful expectation of being burned as an enemy. Sobering. Now, before we all jump off the cliff with our hair on fire here, I want to be clear that what we're talking about here, once again, is a saved person. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift, the goodness of God, the powers of the age to come. They've received repentance out of the crucifixion of Christ. They have been made holy by the blood of the covenant. And if they turn away, it is impossible to restore them to repentance because there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Okay, that's what we are talking about. What we're not talking about. Like I said, I just want to be real clear this morning. What we're not talking about is necessarily individual and specific instances of willful sin. And I'm not saying that because I want that to be true, but I do want that to be true because I'm here to tell you folks, anybody anybody sinned willfully since you were born again? Can I raise both hands? Not proud of it, but let's face it, folks, we've all done it. We've all done stuff that we knew was a sin when, before we did it, And then we did it, and we knew it was a sin while we were doing it, and then we were guilty about it afterwards. We've all done that. Now, once again, I don't want dogma to override the truth of Scripture, right? But I sure am hoping that's not what it takes to qualify for what's being spoken of here, because if it is, I'm going snow skiing, (laughs) right? Like, I'm done. Here's how we know. 1 John, 1 John, not the Gospel of John. But 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Awesome. Salvation, holification by the blood of Jesus Christ. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So here's what John says. He says, first of all, man, if you say you're walking with him when you're walking in darkness, you're just full of it. You're self-deceived. You're doing the stuff they were doing in Amos. You're believing your own deceitful heart instead of what's being put in front of you. That's not true. 
If you walk in the light as He is in the light, then the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse you of all your sin. That doesn't mean that you're sinless. Don't go around speaking like you are. Because you're not. If you say you're not, you make Him a liar. You've been justified. Your sanctification is not yet complete. You've not yet come to glorification. We are mortifying sin every day. I'll never forget, we went to the John Piper conference back in the day. They had a huge bookstore there with a lot of stuff cheap. Michael is looking at different books, and he picks up John Owen and the mortification of sin. He's like, what do you think about this? I was like, you should buy it. Get a hold of that. He went home and said, whoa, yeah. Heavy stuff. He says that if we confess our sins, that Christ is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So... Individual, I hate to say it this way, but ordinary sin that Christians fall into is obviously not what is being spoken of in Hebrews. So the question is, is what is being spoken of? What's he talking about? Well, here's the deal. When you write a book to people that are Hebrew, you expect them to already know all the Hebrew stuff. And so you can make reference without really having to try to explain yourself, which is exactly what the author of Hebrews does. He says in verse 28 of chapter 10, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence or two of, or of two or three witnesses. How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot the Son of God? So he uses this standard, and he says, you Hebrews know the law. And the law is this. Here's the standard. If you are one who would set aside the law of Moses, what they're going to do is beat your brains out with rocks. If that's the case with the law of Moses, how much worse do you think it is for trampling the Son of God underfoot? Okay, what's he referencing? What he's referencing is Deuteronomy chapter 17. And Deuteronomy chapter 17 speaks of setting aside the law of Moses not as a failure to keep part of the law. It doesn't even qualify it as a willful failure to keep part of the law. It qualifies setting aside the law of Moses as absolute apostasy. It says it like this, chapter 17, verse 2. If there is found among you within any of the towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden and it is told to you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently and if it is true and certain that such abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out... You shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. The setting aside of the law of Moses that is being referenced in Hebrews chapter 10 
that requires the evidence of two or three witnesses, requires the person to be executed, and requires the witnesses to be willing to be the first ones to lay their hands in death upon the accused, is the setting aside of the law in its totality unto absolute apostasy, the rejection of God, and the acceptance of the worship of demons. Fair enough. That's some pretty bad stuff. So if you did that under the Old Testament law, they're going to take you out to the gate, and they're going to beat your brains right out of your head. And now the author of Hebrews says, don't you think it's going to be so much worse if instead of setting aside Moses, you set aside Christ, trample the Son of God underfoot, and outrage the Spirit of grace? Now, when you put it in that context, you know, that seems to make sense. I mean, I'm a lot more comfortable with that. I don't know about you. You know, I was a little nervous about the whole if we go on sinning deliberately, but then you look at John and you go, okay, no, there is sin that continues after and that Christ forgives, and then we go, well, what does it really mean to set aside? And we go, okay, well, he's using Moses as a reference. This is worse. We go back and we look at what is said in Deuteronomy, and we go, okay. And the reason we feel more comfortable is is not because the, the, the issue at hand goes away. It's just because we all look around and go, well, I've never worshipped a demon that I know of, so I'm feeling a little bit more confident in myself, in my own position does not fix the inherent contradiction. The inherent contradiction is that God is swearing by himself that he will preserve the promise in the people of Israel, that he will preserve the promise in his saints, and he's swearing by himself in Amos that he's going to wipe out that which he swore to preserve. In Hebrews, he's swearing that they're going to be treated like enemies with no sacrifice left for sin or repentance possible for them. So what do you do with that? How is Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 8 not a contradiction of God swearing by himself to save his people through Abraham in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 through 20? I mean, they're in the same chapter. They're back to back. I swear by myself, if you, if you depart from this, I'll destroy you. I swear I won't destroy you. How is this not a contradiction? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, attained the promise. Not just the blessing and the multiplying, but the blessing that the New Testament says is the promise of the gospel to Abraham. And yet, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those once enlightened and who have fallen away to be restored again to repentance. What is going on here? Okay. What is going on here is a concept that is being championed and developed throughout the entirety of the book of Hebrews. And it is a concept of discipline. 
and God disciplining his people to bring about his desired end. If you go back to Hebrews, if you go forward to Hebrews chapter 12, there's a real clear example. There's several we could quote, but I think chapter 12 works real good. In verse 3, Consider him, this being Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So here's this, hey buddy, you're going to have to have some grit here. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. Boy, that is about as friendly of a translation as you can get. That is not. Illegitimate is way too clinical of a term for what is being portrayed in the Greek here. For you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So here it is. I would propose to you that what you see in Hebrews chapter 6 and chapter 9 is the discipline of the Lord, a very particular type of discipline that if you don't receive it, what it ends in is death. The clearest example would be 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. We read this every single time we come to the Lord's communion table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, speaking about um, disorderly communion, in the church at Corinth, Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so here's this statement. You know, Paul's talking, I mean, um, in the, the author of Hebrews is, is talking about the way that God disciplines his people as his children because that's what fathers do. They discipline their sons. And, and if you're not being disciplined by God, that's because you're an illegitimate child. You're not really his. Man, he disciplines his own. Okay, well, what does that look like? Well, right here in Corinthians, we see an example of it. And Paul says, the Lord is disciplining you. And he's doing it because you're not willing to discipline yourselves. And if you won't go along with the discipline that he is putting out there, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have dropped dead. He killed some of these people because they were approaching the Lord's Supper with an improper heart. It's a pretty high-stakes deal. You go, yeah, but Pastor Brian, the thing is, is refusing to submit to this discipline leads to, to physical death. That's what he's talking about in Corinthians. These people died. And upon their death, 
Because they are being disciplined as sons, then they will stand before him as a son. And at the judgment seat of Christ, the consuming fire will burn away everything that is wood, hay, and stubble. This certainly will be one of the things that gets burned away. But they themselves will be saved, even though it's one through the flame. That's not what's being talked about in Hebrews. What's being talked about in Hebrews is eternal death, fiery damnation of his enemies, not the chastisement of sons. I know. Which is why he does the discipline of sons that if you don't listen will end in death. If is a loaded word. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26. For if. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, sinning to the point that he qualifies is the total abandonment of the worship of God and, the, and seeking after the worship of demons. If you become apostate, if you do this, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Therefore, there is a discipline that exists in God that is a sin unto physical death. A sin unto physical death that will come first so that this doesn't occur. It's in John, 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 through 17. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He will hear us. And we know that if He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. And there is a sin that does. There is a sin that does lead to death. And what I would tell you is the sin that leads to death is an individual that is heading towards Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31. Because, friends, the Lord says, Salvation is mine. It is according to my purpose. I accomplish all my purpose. None shall remove from my hand. And yet, here is a scenario where if a person was to do this, they would be removed from his hand. God's purpose would fail. There would no longer be a sacrifice for sins for those who had already been made holy by the blood of Christ. And not only that, but they cannot be returned to repentance. So if you have a God that says this will not happen, and you have a scenario where it could possibly happen, then what he will do if you run into this kind of rebellion is snuff your physical life out. 
He will kill you. For his name will not be profane. It will not be said of him. And we don't have time. You can look all through the Old Testament over and over and over. He looks down at Israel and says, I ought to just destroy every one of you. And start the promise over with someone else. Not just destroy your physical lives, but wipe out the means by which the promise comes. And we'll just rework it. He says, but I'm not going to because nobody's going to be able to say about me that I can't get it done. They may say it about you. But they won't say it about me. And so if you have a God who says salvation is absolute and will not fail, and yet there is a scenario where it could possibly fail, he is more than willing to kill you to keep you from profaning his name. He'll just bring you right to his side, kids. He'll bring you right there. You're making making the Son of God look bad. You're trampling him underfoot. This is no ordinary sin. You're this close to becoming apostate. You're this close to infuriating the Spirit of grace. You're this close to being in a place where repentance is impossible for you. It's impossible. You say, well, nothing's impossible for God. Yeah, but it's based on a single sacrifice. And He's already said, I'm only doing it once. It's impossible There will be no sacrifice for sin left for you. There is only the fearful expectation of the fiery judgment of God's enemies. He's going to burn you just the way he burns Satan. If you have a God that says, I will not allow this to happen, and here's the thing that you're about to do, he will kill you to stop it. His name will not be profaned. If God will not allow salvation to fail and one of his own is bent on apostasy, they must die before they utterly fail. So it looks like this. Here's the practical application. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. Though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. God is fine... We hold this physical life to be so precious. He looks at it and goes, it is, it's precious. And there's no doubt it, it flows from him. But at the same time, it flows from him. So its preciousness and its value is definitely held in a different regard by him than it is held by us. You know, the old cliche, you know, dad looks at the boy and says, you know, son, I brought you in this world. I'll take you out. I'll make another one that just looks just like you. He actually can. And when you're talking about his people, that he desires, it says, in John chapter 17, to have with him where he is at, and you've got one that's completely going off the rails and making him look bad, it's really not that big of a leap for him just to go, nope, you're coming with me. He's treating you as sons. Is this not what dad does when the boy gets bad out of line? You're coming with me, kid. Bonk. You'll just be right here. Yeah, but this is eternal. Yeah, that's the way it works with God. See, we're temporal, so that passes. But that's not the way it works with Him. He's eternal. Man, Paul says, hand them over for the destruction of their flesh. It's, it's okay. It'll save their soul. Because if they keep going the way they're going, they could legitimately arrive at a place where there is no more sacrifice for sin for them. So let them die. Let the Lord take them. It is mercy. 
It is mercy. It is grace. You know, man, some tough love. You better believe it is. It's the nature of the cross. You say, well, if, if God's going to take you out before you get to apostasy, 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 yeah, I'm wearing out. If God's going to take you out before you get to apostasy, then why the threat of damnation at all? Why doesn't he just say, if you get too close to this line, I'm going to kill you. Why do we have to do all this? There won't be any more sacrifice for you. There, there, there won't be any ability for you to repent. Why, why do we have to do all that? Why don't you say, if you get this close, I'm killing you, man? Fear. Fear is why. Lord, help the church today that we've decided fear is a bad thing. Lord, help the church that wants to fear everything else and not fear God when they ought to be fearing God and not fearing anything else. Fear. Man, Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Man, of all, there's a bunch of good shots on that film uh, from camp over the years. One of my favorite ones was Damon on the tailgate. And that's the shirt he's wearing. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And as we saw in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, this is a topic where wisdom and understanding is critical. He says, this thing is hard. You have to have insight. You have to have wisdom. You have to have understanding. You want some wisdom? Where do you start? Fear. Boys, let me show you. There's a place where you could go. Because here's the thing. The flesh can twist anything. And so you take this truth that's as grand and as glorious as the perseverance of the salvation of the saints. And if you leave it in the hands of the flesh alone, without the Spirit, all they'll do is use it as an excuse for sin. It's exactly what Paul said would happen. You'll use grace as license. Well, hey man, I ain't got any worries. Once saved, always saved, right? Let's just go out and do whatever. And he says, no, this requires wisdom. And for wisdom, you need some fear. And let me let you understand something, big boy. There is a place that you can go to, if you were allowed, where there would be no sacrifice for you. Where there would be no repentance for you. He's not going to let you get there. He'll kill you first. Well, that doesn't sound very appetizing either. sounds a lot better than the alternative. You need some fear so that you can have some wisdom. Not fear that makes you stupid and depart from this text and go, well, then I guess I can lose my salvation. No, what you do is may lose your life so that you keep your salvation. The threat is a valid means to prevent the apostasy in the first place. Have you ever threatened your kids to prevent, to prevent unreconcilable rebellion? Some of you don't have kids that are old enough yet to get to really unreconcilable rebellion, but it can get there. You ever threaten a kid? Son, if you do X, son, if you do X, we're done. You ever done that? And then knowing in doing it, my dad used to do it to me all the time, man. I believed him. I believed him. He'd say, son, if you do so-and-so, I'll kill you. And I thought, man, he might. Most of me doesn't think so. There's a little part in the back of my head that thinks maybe he will. 
It was a very valid means to prevent. But here's the thing. Not only have you ever threatened your kids to prevent unreconcilable rebellion, even if you know you will intervene in that rebellion before they get to the point that it's unreconcilable. You see what I'm saying? Because that's what he's doing. What he's doing is says, if, if you do this, then this. The whole time knowing that that's a valid way to keep him from there, but if you get one that's just going to do it anyway, I will intervene before he does. Not even for his own sake but for the sake of the testimony of the surety of Jesus Christ. You need some fear because if you don't have it, perseverance of the saints quits being a glorious thing and becomes a horrific thing that is license for running in the opposite direction of the kingdom and not to Christ. The the argument, I know it's late, I'm almost done. I want you to see the way he does it though. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see the way he does it. There is a there is a grammatical formula that he is using in the book of Hebrews that takes you directly down this road. It's a, it's a triptych argument. It's a three-pot argument, and it runs this way. First of all, he gives the standard. This is what you should do. Hey, guys, this is what you should do in the kingdom. Then he gives the threat. Here's what will happen if you don't do this, but he doesn't end there. Then he comes back with an encouragement that is based off their identity and says, but this is who you are. Right, So he starts off, he goes, this is what you should be. High standard, you're never going to live all the way up to it, but this is what you should be. Here's what's happened if you knock that. But son, here's what you are. So go live up to this and run from that. He does it every time. I don't know that... I don't know that my dad gleaned this from the book of Hebrews, but I think it was certainly of the Spirit. Dad used to do this to me all the time, man. I'd be getting out to go spend the night at somebody's house. What would he say? Here's what I expect. You better not embarrass me. Remember who you are. And that last part was taking you back to the top. You are my son. So remember that. Fear this. But remember who you are. This is what... The author of Hebrews does. He does it both times. Check it out. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, and we're done. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, here's the standard. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Man, here's what we're supposed to be. Let's be people growing in the word. Okay, here's the threat. Here's what happens if you don't do that. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. There's the threat. We won't read it all. We've been doing it all day. Then, chapter 6, verse 9, comes the encouragement that is based off known identity. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things Things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here's what you should be. Here's the threat if you don't. Look at who you are. It will keep you from coming to the point of the threat. 
He does the same thing in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, and our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And he continues there in, in, in what the standard is, here's what we should do, and then he gets to the threat. Here's what happens if you don't. For if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He develops that. And then in chapter 10, verse 32, encouragement based on identity. Recall the former days after you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had better possessions and and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward, for you have, in, have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back. Here's the encouragement based on identity. Here's the standard. Here's the threat. Who are you? We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Friends, national Israel in the book of Amos has committed the sin unto death. They are this close to being fully apostate. They are so close to being fully apostate that he has to send a prophet from Judah to talk to him. They're this close. And unlike the United States, they have a national promise that is tied to our individual promise. They had a national promise that is the extension of the individual promise of the gospel that's being spoken of in Hebrews chapter 6. So the sin unto death applies to them nationally. And he looks at them and says, uh-uh. Nope. You're done. I will kill you before I let you enter into damnation. When God swears by himself, the topic, this is, I'll just say it because I don't have time to develop it. When God swears by himself, the topic is always the sin unto death. You know, we look at these two examples. One in, one, one in, you know, Hebrews. He says the Lord swore by Himself to Abraham to to make sure the gospel. We look in Amos. He swears by Himself to um, to um, to Israel that He's going to bring the sin unto death. Friends, let me tell you something. We look at one as positive and one as negative because that's the way it affects us. The reality is God is speaking about the exact same thing. The application is all that changes. Every time He's swearing by Himself out of His justice. He is swearing about bringing forth the sin unto death. The difference is, in whether it is positive or negative, is whether it will be directly experienced by the individuals at hand or whether it will be substitutionally experienced in Christ through the promise to Abraham. Either way, when he swears to himself, what's happening is death is coming. 
It'll either come on you or it'll come on Christ for you. As a matter of fact, in faith, I think Abraham's thoughts about what God would do with his children were really not very far off the mark. We mentioned it last week in Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Here's that same kind of conundrum. How is it that, Lord, that salvation is secure, and yet you say damnation? How is it that the promise is going to come through Isaac, and yet yet you expect me to, to, to sacrifice? him, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Friends, the reality is, is national Israel committed the sin unto death, and Abraham wasn't that far off the mark. They don't exist. They haven't existed for 2,000 years, 2,700 years. And yet, the name of God will not be profaned. His salvation and his sacrifice will persevere and national Israel will be raised from the dead. For in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 27, it says that lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. It is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. The nation committed the sin unto death. He took them out before they could go absolutely apostate. They haven't existed since. One of these days, he'll raise them right back up. You see the sin unto death in Amos In Romans, you see the resurrection of the dead and the salvation of his people. You say, well, man, that's great. What's the application for me? Because you've got to be done here, right? Got to be done. What's the application? The application is this. Let the threat be valid. Don't try to explain it away. Let it be valid. Let it be valid. Let it create the pressure that it's supposed to create. That's the whole point. Let the threat be valid. Christians, in the fear of the Lord, flee willful sin and cling to Christ, not using grace as a license. Sinners, in the fear of the Lord, run to Christ. Place your faith in Christ. Repent to Christ. For if he is willing to go so far with those whose blood he with those who his blood has made holy, what do you think he's capable of doing with you if you refuse to repent when it's offered? Heavy stuff. Come to Jesus. Let's pray.